Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time to talk sports on Saturday here on ESPN 700. For the next two hours, we will cover everything from the Utes, Cougars, Aggies, RSL, and the Jazz to anything happening on the national stage. This is Sports Saturday. Welcome into Sports Saturday, ESPN 700. James Peterson on the mic. Olivia Benyon behind the glass. Great to be back with you. Uh, Last week brought the show back after a few months uh, hiatus, taking the time off during football season. Uh, Glad to be back here. We we debuted a new segment, the Weekend Brunch Tour. We will not have – we do not have a stop today. We'll have another stop on the tour next week. But super excited to have that, give you the lowdown on all the great brunch spots along the Wasatch Front and here in Salt Lake City especially. Um, Appreciate uh, all of our clients that are going to be a part of that. We had Stratford Proper last week. Um, is the first stop, and next week uh, I'll let you know what the next stop will be um, on the brunch tour. Excited for that. Um, but uh, today, tons of stuff to talk about. It's been a, been a busy week. This time of year, it's always busy. you got about six different sports going on, including the World Cup. Down goes Portugal. Morocco, the Cinderella of the tournament, is in to the semifinals. They beat Ronaldo and Portugal 1-0, just barely, in the quarterfinals in Qatar. Uh, Absolutely insane story there. No one would have predicted them to get this far, especially uh, beating, they beat Spain and Portugal the last two weeks. Portugal just put up six goals. Uh, in their in their round of 16 game and uh, they shut them out clean sheet so uh, awesome story there for Morocco Um, unfortunately a not so awesome story coming out of Qatar yesterday Uh, the the uh, notable soccer writer with he was with Sports Illustrated for a long time started his own Substack recently Grant Wall uh, passed away yesterday in Qatar. Um, there's some. The official story is that he, as he was leaving the stadium, he collapsed and and died, uh, right right there outside the stadium. There are there are some people that don't necessarily believe that story, and I I, I don't know that I totally believe it either. His uh, Grant's brother went on Instagram and said that he believes that there was foul play. Uh, Don't really have any more information for you, so I'm not going to really give my opinion too much on that other than to say it's just a really tragic story. And um, people who go to cover sporting events shouldn't be dying at those sporting events. 
and whether whether it really was just a a a spontaneous bad health incident is what the official story is or whether there was foul play it just that's just you just shouldn't that just shouldn't happen and it it really shakes you when you hear that kind of story um just my thoughts go out to him and and his family and um everyone who loves sports everyone who loves soccer especially is hurting uh when you hear a guy like when you hear about the the passing of a guy like Grant Wall uh an icon in the industry for sure um I won't really say much more than that because there's not about my opinion about how he died because there's just there's not really a lot of information there. I don't I don't feel it's very responsible to be to be speculating on that because it really could have just been a uh, unfortunate um, out of nowhere bad health uh, moment for him that 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 le- that was fatal. Um, and I don't know that it's it's totally fair, even though it even though it may feel to a lot of people, including his brother, that it couldn't have just been that. Um, I don't know that it's totally fair to say that that uh, Qatar had or the people in Qatar had some kind of wrongdoing in in his death, and that he was killed, um, like some are are saying. Um, I'm in, I'm just gonna stay away from that and until we have more information but uh grant wall uh the the u.s in particular u.s soccer but uh but soccer reporter um died yesterday in qatar after the uh, argentina netherlands match uh quarterfinals match yesterday in the world cup uh that kind of overshadows the the game we've had some great soccer there but when when something like that happens and there's there's some there's a lot of people questioning the nature of it. It, it. it overshadows what's going on in the field for sure. Um, even though it's been it's been a great tournament, uh, we just had a great game. Like I mentioned, Morocco upsetting Portugal, continuing their Cinderella run into the semifinals. Uh, pretty cool there. Yesterday's matches were incredible. <laughs> Two uh, knockout stage matches going to PKs on the same day first time in I think I heard since sometime in the 80s it might have been even before that that that's happened in World Cup history Uh, they were two insane games as well you had the Netherlands coming back from two goals down with less than 10 minutes to play in regulation Uh, ended up being you know about 20 minutes to play because of they added a a ton of uh, stoppage time but it took they they actually were over the the allotted stoppage time when they got when the Netherlands got the tying goal. Uh, so just and and what a goal that was on the free kick! Uh, just an incredible game. The PKs even went down to the last kick for Argentina. Messi and, and company moving on another World Cup without a victory for the Netherlands. They're still the best country to never win a World Cup the winningest country to never win a World Cup, uh, as they will not win this year. But Messi into the semi, Messi and Argentina into the semifinals got a really good chance for, for him to win his first World Cup in his last ever World Cup. Uh, what a story that would be and what a story that is following that. I know a lot of people rooting for him because he might be the greatest player of all time. And he hasn't won uh, the big 
Cup, right? The World Cup. And so a lot of people pulling for him to get that as, as extra validation to what's already an incredible career for Lionel Messi. Um, yeah, so that's a lot of fun. We got France and England. The rivalry, the, the political rivalry that goes back centuries and soccer rivalry for sure um, on the pitch at noon. You can watch that on Fox right after right after I get done here. You, that'll, that'll get started on Fox um, as well. Harry Kane and the Brits trying to trying to write what is what would be an incredible story for them as well there to bring the cup back home I think the last time they won was was in the 60s uh, which is insane you think about all the great English soccer players and English soccer teams and that they haven't won in that long it's just hard to fathom Um, France though are the defending champs they got Kylian Mbappe who a lot of people According to a lot of people, is the greatest player in the world right now, um, and they're like I said, they're the defending champs. They're going to be a tough opponent for the Brits uh, to get past if they are to get to another final and get one step closer to bringing the cup back home, as they say, across the pond. An Argentina England final would be something, knowing that there's so many people pulling for Messi to get that world that that uh elusive world cup title in his final international tournament and the amount of people in england and the you know english people around the world pulling they've been pulling for england's national team to finally win another one i mean that what that would mean to that country is uh there's no words for it. it it would be it would be an incredible thing for the English if they can bring the cup back home. Um, as much as it'd be an incredible thing for a lot of for the Argentines and a lot of uh, Messi fans around the world for him to get that title. So that final would be would be pretty awesome. Would be a pretty special final. Uh, we'll see how it turns out. Uh, just a couple steps away, England's got to get past France in the quarters uh, today and. Then they got to get through the through their semifinal matches as well coming up next week. Uh, coming up on the show today, we we'll talk a little bit more about World Cup for sure. Um, but uh, we have at ten thirty, we'll welcome in Sarah Todd of the Deseret News. I was I was at the game last night, as was she. The the Jazz game, Rudy's return to the Viv. Uh, we'll get her thoughts on that and the craziness that was on Wednesday night, that insane comeback Wednesday night over the Warriors, the defending champs. Uh, both teams shorthanded, but it, you, I honestly didn't think it was going to be that great of a game because of the guys who were sitting out. You had Markinen out for the Jazz. You had Steph and Draymond and Wiggins out for the Warriors. Uh, but it ended up being the game of the night in the NBA. It really did. It's certainly the finish of the night in the NBA. Uh, We'll ask her about that as well. Um, And at 11.30, we'll bring in uh, a friend from Ute Zone, Sammy Mora. She's co-hosted with with me a couple of times here. We'll have her on at 11.30 to uh, preview the Rose Bowl. Utah, we know they're playing Penn State now. Utah finishing in the last um, college football playoff rankings. 
before bowl season. They're finishing at eighth in the country, and they're taking on number 11 Penn State in the Rose Bowl. We'll ask her about the matchup. Also, we had the Red Rocks preview last night. First chance to look at this year's Utah Gymnastics team, number three in the country, um, and it sounds like they put on a pretty good showcase uh, last night up at the Huntsman Center. Sammy Mora, uh, one of those uh, really good gymnastics reporters for Ute Zone, and, and uh, one of one of the few here in the in the state does a really good job of of covering. Red Rocks Gymnastics, and um, so we'll get her thoughts on the Red Rocks preview last night at the Huntsman Center as well. Uh, so that's coming up at 11.30, Sarah Todd at 10.30, uh, but I wanted to start out talking about, I started out talking about the World Cup, but I want to continue the segment here talking about what a monumental thing that happened on Thursday morning, and that is Brittany Griner is home. She... Was officially her freedom was officially secured in a one-for-one one exchange. The U.S. promised uh, the convicted arms dealer, notorious arms dealer Victor Boot, for Brittany Griner, WNBA All-Star, who had been sentenced to nine years incarceration in Russia, had already been sent to a penal colony um, there. It'd been there for about a month, maybe a little bit less than a month, and almost 10 months of detention, of wrongful detention in Russia, and she is finally home. I mean, what a day that is for her and her family Thursday morning. I know that she is, she's, she's landed, she landed sometime yesterday, and so she is with her family right now, just cannot even imagine what her her and her family are feeling now that she is home and safe um just really happy for her and her loved ones that uh, that she's back the WNBA uh, and the WNBA players association had some really good put out some really good statements thanking people for keeping the story relevant and and putting that necessary pressure on uh, the White House and the State Department to continue to fight every day to bring her home and um, to keep advocating for not only her, but for uh, all of the wrongful detained Americans around the world. Um, Paul Whelan is one of those. And he's been in Russia for now four years, I believe. Um, and he was, let's be clear about this, Biden has said, and the State Department has said, they wanted him part of the exchange the whole time. But the Russians had all the leverage here. It's their prisoners, and they knew just how valuable Brittany Griner in particular was to us, the American public, and they used all that, that leverage to say, no, we're not giving you Paul Whelan and if you don't take this deal, Victor Boot for Brittany Griner, you're not getting Brittany at all. That's that's the information that I got. That's what the reporting says here. Uh, that's what all the reporting says, that it, it came down to Russia kind of giving an ultimatum and saying, it's this deal or it's no deal. And so uh, Biden and the state, uh, President Biden and the State Department um, 
kind of said, well, we want to bring her home. And I think it's the right decision. And they have said that they're going, they are still, they have been working tirelessly to bring Paul Whelan home as well and, and other Americans, but in particular, as it's relevant to this story with Brittany Griner, Paul, Paul Whelan, um, and that they will, they are continuing to work on that. Paul Whelan's family has been great about this as well. They've said this isn't about he should this isn't about we don't want her to come home first because Paul should be the first one to come home. They have supported the efforts to bring Brittany Griner home. Um because I mean that's the right thing to do. It you shouldn't you shouldn't prolong someone else's suffering because of your own. And uh, that's really big of them to have taken that stance. Um, and as hard as that is, because it, it's human nature to be like, well, hey, I, he should, our guy should come home first. He's been there way longer. And he is a, he's a war veteran. He, he was a Marine. He was a police officer. He served his country in multiple facets. Why is... Why is the basket? Why is this basketball player more important? They set all that aside and supported these efforts, and and they're putting their trust in President Biden and the State Department to uh, bring Paul home as well. It's just gonna it's gonna happen in a, at a later date. So, and, and Brittany's wife Sherelle also uh, went out of her way to to give her thoughts, to say her thoughts are with Paul Whelan's family and to encourage. Uh, President Biden to continue to do everything they can to bring him home as well. So this isn't a Team Brittany versus Team Paul thing. This is a we're all in this together kind of thing. And 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 they just they made the decision to to bring uh, Brittany Griner home first. And listen, there's a lot of stuff that's come out about that that's stemmed from Russia's state-run sham of a media. That has said, oh, they, I can't believe the Amer- the stupid Americans did this. They chose to bring home a basketball player instead of a a spy, because that's what that's what uh, Paul Whelan is. He's on espionage. He's in uh, he's incarcerated in in Russia right now on espionage charges, spying charges. Um, so a, a spy, and they said he's a hero. Why would they? It's really stupid of them to to ignore bringing their hero home over a basketball player. How stupid are the Americans? Let's not let's not take that at face value. I think we should be smarter than that. Let's I think it's much more likely that they that they know how important Brittany was to the Amer- Brittany coming home to the American public and that they weren't even they they weren't for a second going to let Biden in the White House bring Paul Whelan home. I don't even think they would have they would have accepted a one for one Paul for Victor Boot. I think they only were they were going to ramp up the pressure to say we're only going to let you have Brittany Griner so that they could say how how stupid are they? They 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 uh they decided on a basketball player to bring a basketball player home, trade an arms dealer for a basketball player instead of a uh a military veteran and supposed spy. Listen, I think it was I think the deal was only for Brittany Griner so that they could say so that they could 
they could sell that to their people, that sham of a story to their people, and say, look at how awesome we are. We brought home a, a dangerous arms dealer for a basketball player. That's really all I think. And Russia had all the leverage, unfortunately. There, there was really nothing President Biden could do about that. Um, so I, I think that instead of instead of criticizing President Biden and the State Department for giving away a really dangerous arms dealer to bring back Brittany Griner, I think we should just celebrate that Brittany Griner's home. <laughs> it's a much more complicated thing than any of us could ever fathom. T.J. Quinn went on uh, Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max Thursday morning, and he said as much. He said it's never simple. It's never really as simple as a one-for-one swap in these cases. There are always undisclosed things that are exchanged in these kind of prisoner prisoner exchanges, uh, things that we'll never hear about. So the U.S. probably got more. The, the U.S. probably got more in exchange, not just Brittany Griner's freedom, and Russia may have gotten something else besides getting Victor Boot. And we'll never know about that because there's national security things tied up into this and and, and there's reasons why the public just doesn't need to know or, or maybe shouldn't know. Um, so that was an interesting thing I heard this week. TJ Quinn is the is the uh, ESPN reporter that's been all over and the uh, Brittany Griner detention story since it broke in March. Um, he also said that... Uh, Griner's family, including her wife, Sherelle, has been preparing and making plans for her return for a long time, which, I mean, that goes without saying. Um, and that's going to include Griner going to a private, undisclosed location to decompress. Because right now is a time, he, Thursday morning is a, and, and Friday when she touched down in the U.S. for the first time, it's a time for celebration and pure joy, right? But the coming weeks and months are going to be really tough as she recovers from the PTSD she's already experienced. She's undoubtedly already experiencing, her family's already experiencing, and what she will experience. And so she needs that time to just be, to just be, and to decompress and recover from that. So they've set up um, a place for her to do that. She's undoubtedly there now. Um, since she is back in the United States. And um, that's just going to take time to learn to cope with that kind of PTSD and recover from what she just went through, right? Uh, being in Russian jail and the, the penal colony for almost 10 months. Um, Sean Hurd from Anscape had a really good article on this and the, the mental health aspect of this and what her what we should expect her experience to be as she begins to recover from this traumatic experience as an international detainee. Uh, Sean talked with two mental health experts about this. Uh, some of the things they said are that they think uh, that I think are important to highlight are that she and her team, if she and her team decide she's not going to do any interviews or public appearances, because everyone wants to know, everyone wants to talk. I'm sure everyone wants to talk with her, know what the experience is like from her perspective in her words and and how she's feeling being home everyone's everyone's curious about that right um so that so if her team decides that hey we're not going to do any interviews 
about that for a long time, if ever. We must respect that. And I say we, and I mean the public, you guys listening, all the listeners and the the viewers and the media consumers, but also the media members, myself and others, we got to respect that. People experience trauma. Another thing is they said people experience trauma must understand that they don't Oh, they don't owe anyone anything when it comes to talking about their trauma. And we, the public and media, should in turn share in that understanding by not trying to push her into doing so. I think that's a really important thing. Um, we got to be we got to be delicate about how we approach this. And again, that being said, I don't think there's anything wrong with talk show uh, hosts and, and, and reporters reaching out to her people and saying and asking requesting an interview but if if you get a no you got to leave it at that right um, we can't be don't turn on the don't take no for an answer salesman approach that a lot of us go into because it's important to get it's important to write compelling stories so that you get people to listen you get people to to read write and tell compelling stories. I think that's something we got to set aside in this case. If you get that no, which you undoubtedly, it stands the reason that it's probably going to be a while before Brittany's in a place where she can talk publicly about this. We got to just leave it at that and, and let her recover at her own pace because needless to say, she just went through a lot. Uh, so I, I, I thought that was important um, perspective to bring again that's the article on Anscape by Sean Hurd uh, about what we should expect her recovery from this traumatic experience uh, to be so they give a good idea of, of what she might be feeling and, and the what she will probably go through in the coming weeks and months um, as she is now home and, and kind of decompressing from all of this uh, Coming up on the other side, we've got Deseret News jazz beat writer Sarah Todd joining the show. The preview jazz, the Jazz Nuggets game tonight. They're back in action tonight. Another back-to-back, their eighth of the season. Yeah, it's been a lot for them uh, to start this year. Really tough schedule. We'll talk about uh, the crazy ending against the Warriors on Wednesday night and Rudy's return on the other side, you're listening to Sports Saturday with me, James Peterson, on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. I never came to the beach, I stood by the ocean. I never sat by the shore, under the sun with my feet in the sand, but you brought me. Welcome back to Sports Saturday, ESPN 700. James Peterson with you here inside the Valley Collision Studio. Beautiful downtown Salt Lake City. Olivia Benyon doing a great job behind the glass. Uh, Excited to welcome on our next guest. She's the Utah Jazz beat writer for the Deseret News and a good friend. Uh, Had a good time last night covering Rudy's return. And this week, I was able to go to both games this week. Had a good time with her and the... The other beat writer crew this week at the Viv. Sarah, how you doing? Not too bad. Just uh, getting ready for a flight out to Denver for the 
I think that we're on the eighth back to back of the season. Yeah. So just as busy as ever and uh, trying to figure out when my my sleep is. I'm going to catch up on my sleep. Yeah. Definitely. I I mean, you bring up that it's the eighth back to back. I thought it was really funny last night. Was we were in the locker room. Um, watching Bowler do his locker room interview with Jordan Clarkson, and he mentioned that it's the eighth one, and Jordan goes, it's been eight already? <laughs> I, I don't even think they yeah, can believe it, how many it's been. Yeah, I mean, I I really I feel like every year I'm amazed at how like truly grueling the NBA 82-game schedule is. Um, but it feels like, this many back-to-backs before Christmas is actually unusual. And so I'm going to have to do some digging. I know that when the Jazz were, I think it was at their fifth back-to-back of the season, which is crazy. I mean, we're literally still like in the first week and a half of December, and we're talking about eight back-to-backs, which just feels wild. But um, there's a lot of teams in the league that have had that number of back-to-backs. And so I'm just wondering what the reason for that is. So, uh, a great story idea. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Got some homework for you. Beat beat Andy and <laughs> Eric and Tony to it. <laughs> um, so, staying on that subject, I didn't. I wasn't planning on going on it, but do you think that it's just a thought that popped into my head? Do you think that the NBA is still recalibrating after the two years of the COVID schedule, the seventy-two compressed? 72 game compressed schedule that they had for those two years. Um, obviously, the COVID season, you had the four months uh, in between, but they played that 72 games. And then 2020, 2020, 2021 season was one of those really compressed schedules. Do you think that they're still kind of recalibrating from that, or does that have nothing to do with this, do you think? I do, I, my initial instinct is to say that it doesn't have anything to do with it because, you know, we had a normal off season with, you know, a summer league and a draft and everything that like we, we went at the right pace to, for the, the NBA calendar. And then with the season starting up, you know, mid to late October, that that felt normal. And I, I'm just, it feels like a lot to happen before. And I know that it makes it difficult that the jazz don't play like home games on Sundays. I know that that plays a part. Oh, yeah, and so maybe sure. it's, Maybe it's just that because this is my third season covering the Jazz, but my first normal season covering the Jazz. <laughs> and so maybe I'm just now getting used to the Jazz schedule is what's happening. Yeah, you know what? That is a good point that I didn't, that I didn't think about the the no Sunday home games. Uh, kind of That's one of those consequences. You're going to have maybe a little bit more grueling schedule than the rest of the teams in the league because the rest of the teams in the league don't have that concern over uh, not wanting to play that many games on Sunday. So that, that's a good point you bring up there. Uh, yeah, who knows what it is, but uh, looking forward to your future story on it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, this, week's game, this week's games. I mean, we already were – I mean, it was already going to be kind of a banner week because you had the defending champs coming in on Wednesday night and then Rudy's return on Friday. But it ended up being even uh, more notable and, and kind of crazy than I think – than I expected and I think many people expected. It started out with that crazy ending and the win over the Warriors on Wednesday night 
as crazy as it was, though, Sarah, watching it unfold, I couldn't help but think this year that's what this Jazz team does. They just seem to be at their best when they're in chaos, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the Jazz know that they're going to be in a lot of close games. Uh, they've they've had a weird number of close games already this year. I think that it's like uh, they after the Warriors game, it's like six of their 27 games of the season had been decided by 10 points or less or seven points or less, something like that. And so like, that's a lot of close games to be in uh, this early in the season. And that's not made any easier by the fact that close games are, are well thought out and well managed when you have like your most veteran players. Young teams usually don't fare well in really close game, late game situations when it comes down the stretch. And so not having Mike Conley through the last nine games has, has not helped. And so the Jazz are, are going through a lot of like growing pains and they're hitting a learning curve that maybe they didn't think they were going to have to hit this early in the season. But I think, I think that's been good for them. And then I think, like you said, they, they operate well in chaos, but I think that point is well made again when they have their full complement of players. And so you're not going to operate as well in chaos when you don't have Mike Conley, Lowry Markinen. Um, but this just a really nice turn of events right at the end of that Warriors game. And, you know, it was Simone Fontecchio hitting a game winning dunk at the end, which is uh I'm really happy for him because he's he's such a sweet guy and uh, he's worked really hard to get to the NBA and uh, that that was a wild night. Uh, I still maintain that I don't think that the Jazz actually should have won that game because there were some missed calls there at the end. So. Oh yeah, there were the refs just decided to stop making calls at all towards the end there. There was a so one that got all the one that got all the attention was Kelly Olynyk's tackle. <laughs> Over Jordan Poole yeah. that was like, yeah, that's that's a foul. <laughs> but the other one that I, I don't know that a lot of people saw because it didn't turn out very well for the Jazz when it happened. And I I had a great vantage point. I sit across the arena from where you and, and the rest of the riders sit, and um, it was the play when Fontecchio got the uh, was blocked by Clay Thompson on what would, what would have been the game tying three, um, and it looked like okay now the game's actually over. Um, Olenek hit I can't remember who it was it was probably Jordan Poole just hit him all arm to knock that ball loose so there there was a couple of play a couple of missed calls there or no non-calls the Jazz benefit from uh from Kelly Olenek there at the end yeah the one that really sticks out to me which again like happened very quickly and people it's you know a really small play and so it doesn't get a lot of attention is that you know Nikhil comes around he strips the ball from Jordan Poole on the last possession of the game. And re- before Kelly tackles Jordan Poole, uh, there's a kickball. It goes off of Kelly Olenek's foot. And so, like, that would have oh. been, you know, with three seconds left or something. Because right when it comes, it's stripped out of uh, Poole's hands. It doesn't go straight to the floor. It's a kickball. See, I missed <laughs> so, that. That should have been side out of bounds to the Warriors. Oh, and then man. by the time they did it again, it would have been over. Yeah. And, and you can't expect lightning to strike three times <laughs> at that point. <laughs> no. uh, 
because that it already struck twice with those two steals on the inbounds. Um, you wouldn't expect it to <laughs> happen a third time if that if it had been called right. But hey, that's part of the game. The players told us as much after the game. I asked Kelly if he was at all surprised that there was an that there was a no call on his tackle on Jordan Poole, and he said there were no calls all night. Why, why stop now? Which <laughs> I think yeah. Kelly Olynyk is an underrated. A funny guy in that locker room. I always, always love hearing his his thoughts. He has a great way of summing things up. But um, yeah, it, just a wild night. Great win for the Jazz. Another weird uh, clutch win for them this year. Um, and one of the points that that stood out to me in the post game uh, interviews, Sarah, was just about every one of the players talked about how they've been practicing. They had been practicing end-of-game situations in their three days off uh, leading up to the Warriors game. Uh, they said they practiced a few different times leading up to that. You've covered a couple of different teams now. Is it unusual to hear that a team is practicing that as much as we heard that the Jazz have been? It's not incredibly unusual. Um, teams do practice those things. I think it's it's the the amount that they're doing it because they're not just practicing those things like when they have actual practice days like they'll come in for a morning shoot around and they'll go through end of game situations and like drills where they're playing against a clock and it's like three on two and they'll change up the numbers that they're practicing they'll do uh, where they're at a disadvantage and it's two on three at the end of the clock and so they're going through these drills as much as will hardy can fit it into the schedule and so the the fact that they're doing it not just on practice days, but sometimes when it's just an optional day and some guys come into the gym to shoot around, and they have enough guys, they'll go through them together then. And so it's it's the quantity uh, that they're doing it. And so, but like I was saying earlier, realizing that they're not going to have Mike Conley, and then also with kind of the future in mind where we have to realize that Mike Conley is not going to be around forever, right? Like, I think a lot of people were expecting that Mike Conley was going to be traded this offseason. I was absolutely in that camp. But even so, even if Mike Conley is not traded, even if he stays with the Jazz, like, he he is at the tail end of his career. And I know that he is great at managing the game and that he's really important to the decision-making of this team. But at some point, the Jazz are going to have to have someone else make those really important decisions. And so while he's been injured, it's, it's really put that pressure on the Jazz to, to start realizing, like, we have to figure out what's going to happen when we don't have Mike anymore. And so that's why you have to work really hard on getting guys like Colin Sexton, Kalen Horton Tucker, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and even guys who just aren't used to closing games and being, like, really pressure situation decision makers, Lowry Markkinen, Jordan Clarkson. Jordan Clarkson has not been a closer for his career. And so all of these things are new for these players, and so it's really important that they practice them, but also that they that they get those reps. And so while it's been crazy that they've had so many close games, and that they've had to make these decisions. Like these are really important game reps and really important like lessons for them to have. Yeah, I I think it bodes well for the future that they are all that they're already going through this um, with guys like you say that are not familiar with being in those situations. And I think 
it's interesting that that Will Hardy has had the foresight to know that this is we're probably going to be in a lot of these situations and we got to be ready to know that enough to decide that we're going to practice this all the time even if, like you say even if it's not a practice day we're just finishing up shoot around we're going to practice this it, pretty cool that he's kind of had that foresight or has that come it, maybe I'm giving him too much credit has that come because they've been in so many close games this year no I mean I think I think that's it's both it's because they've been in so many and it it I think it's become clear that this team is probably going to be in many more like if you're just taking the sample size from the first 28 games like it's you know, conventional wisdom says, like, this is how you guys are going to play this season. And so that's part of it. But also there is foresight because I know that, you know, Will Hardy was dealing with some of the same issues in Boston when he, he again, had a young team that didn't have guys that were used to making those, like, really clutch situations and that they they sometimes had problems in, in close games like that. And so he saw that there was a need with a young team. And so he carried over that experience. And, you know, that is something that's kind of new because when Will Hardy was in San Antonio for so much of that time, he had guys like Tony and Tim and Manu Ginobili and then Kawhi Leonard. Like he had guys that were very good at making decisions. And so to then move over in his coaching career and see kind of what it is to be coaching through like a, a young core of a basketball team. He brought that over to the Jazz, and I think it's, it's both foresight on his part and, you know, the situation that the Jazz find themselves in. Interesting stuff there. Uh, talking with Sarah Todd, Deseret News Jazz beat writer here on Sports Saturday on ESPN 700. A few more minutes here. Uh, let's talk about last night, Sarah. Uh, Rudy returned to the Viv. Uh, anything surprise you about the ovation he got from the crowd or was it what you expected? I think, I mean, that's what I expected. I, I was actually surprised. I, maybe it's just because of the, you know, the jazz fans that I see on, on social media, but I was surprised and, but also pleasantly surprised that the ovation that he, that he got, but that then after the game started that the jazz fans slowly started to turn on him, you know, when he <laughs> had a couple a couple of floppy fouls or maybe a little cheap shots that then the fans were booing him when he was at the free throw line. I thought, you know, that there was a chance that maybe that there were going to be fans that were just going to cheer for Rudy every time he touched the ball or every time he made a basket. And there was a smattering of that, but it was mostly at the in the first few minutes of the game. After that, they kind of, you know, switched their emotions around and reminded themselves that they were jazz fans and, uh, and Rudy said after the game that he, he heard the booze and that he respected it, and he said it with a smile on his face. And so um, that, that it was surprising to me that they that they switched so quickly, though, and I liked it. Yeah, uh, for me, I'll just say we all knew that there's only one chance. There's only one chance to uh, give – to give him a, the ovation and the the respect of of a guy that was it's a jazz legend. There's only one chance to do that on his return. There's only one return first return back to Vivint. I was a little bit uh, I was a little bit surprised at how late arriving the crowd was. It was still there were still tons of empty seats in the arena when the starting lineups were announced, and so the the ovation was not that big at that point from my vantage point I just 
I know you always get late arriving crowds in the NBA in particular. That's just how things happen. But I just I just figured that there would have been more planning to get there in plenty of time for what would what seemed to be a, a pretty big game on the on the schedule this year. And you had months to uh, to prepare for it. I just would have thought that there'd been more people in the seats at that time to give him a bigger ovation in the uh, starting lineup when he was announced as the starting lineup. And then. I mean, after the video tribute, it was a lot bigger because it was pretty much full. The arena was pretty much full at that point. But I still just figured the ovation would be just bigger. But, I mean, I'm splitting hairs there. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's not helped by the fact that, um, like, Rudy was trying his absolute best to, like, stay in game mode during it, you know. And so I think that if he would have, you know, he did wave to the – look up at the screen a little bit when they did the video tribute and then he did wave to the crowd but I think that if he kind of like would would have stood up and maybe soaked it in a little bit more that maybe the ovation would have seemed a little bit bigger and kind of carried on for a few more seconds um but he he was trying really hard to you know be like oh I'm in the game this is what matters and I I just wish for his sake that maybe he would have embraced that moment just a little bit more but it's really hard to make those decisions and I'm sure that he had a lot of emotions last night. And so I'm, I'm not going to hold it to, against anyone. And, you know, I'm give, giving everyone a benefit of the doubt. There were some snow flurries last night. Maybe there were some True. issues. True. Yeah. And I, I, I know I say all that and I sound like I'm this insensitive guy that doesn't know what traffic is. I, un- I understand that there's extenuating circumstances to, as to why people would arrived a little bit late last night. I just would have thought that you know, I would have expected it not to be such a, a late arriving crowd as it was, but uh, it was still a good ovation. I thought the fans did great honoring him, and, and I like, like you said, I like how they they made that switch and be like, okay, now we're rooting for the Jazz, though he's not on the team anymore. So that 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 made it fun. A um, uh, couple more things for you: did the scuffle at the end. We know Jazz lose. Uh, they're that's actually the first one, the game that I've actually been there to cover that they've lost. <laughs> so that was that's a little weird for me. Um, hadn't hadn't been in a post game uh, interview situation where they're down uh, before, so that was a new experience for me. But there was the scuffle at the end after Rudy decided to get that layup with, when the game was already in hand with a couple seconds left. Malik Beasley, as you said afterwards, went nose to chest. Um, with Rudy and told it and in his words to us he he said something we know he said something else there but in us what he said to us in the media session was that it's an he told him it's an unwritten rule and it's disrespectful and I want to bring the a little bit of the discussion we had in the media room here Sarah was we were we were kind of complaining about how seriously players losing players in particular and teams take these unwritten rules what's your take on that yeah, I mean it's it, it's never the the winners that get mad at these unwritten rules. It's the losers, and so don't lose. Like do better, and and don't put yourself in a situation where you're gonna already be mad at yourself because you're just gonna be more mad when somebody else kind of takes that extra shot. And I I'm just of the opinion that like an extra shot doesn't matter, and like I, I mean, it's hard for me to kind of wrap my head. And like I've played basketball before, and it's it's hard for me to understand and wrap my head around like why two points 
is really going to make you that upset. Like, if Malik Beasley didn't want to feel like salt was being poured in the wound, if there was going to be insult added to injury or however you want to say it, then maybe the defense on D'Angelo Russell in the fourth quarter should have been better because he scored 20 points in the fourth quarter alone. And uh, Malik Beasley was a part of that. And so uh, taking offense to, to Rudy Gobert's late game shot is, is, uh, is just a little bit soft in my opinion, especially when you look back at the shot that Jared Vanderbilt took at yeah. the end of the Jets' win against Minnesota when they played them on October 21st. I mean, that was uh, a dunk that was unnecessary that they could have held the ball for for the last second, and he, like, screamed at the crowd after he dunked the ball. Like, if, if anything, that was more disrespectful. Uh, Rudy just kind of laid it up. And so I, I think that in general, like, if you're a basketball team and you don't want to be scored on in the final second, then don't play a full-court defense. Uh, on that possession, and you probably won't have to deal with it. But the Jazz were pressing when the the Wolves inbounded the ball and made its way down to Rudy. And why not? It's a league full of guys who are stat padding. Like some of these guys will walk up to the scorers table before they check in and check their stats. Or when they go back into the locker room, they look at the box score. They're checking their stats. And so. I, I see absolutely nothing wrong with Rudy taking that shot. Um, and also, like, I think that Rudy had the better point last night when he said that, you know, it kind of took away from his moment a little bit to have to deal with that right at the end of the game. We, like we've said, this was a big night for him. And it it was mostly about him. And I think that, you know, Malik Beasley made it a little bit about himself. Yeah, um, definitely something to uh, chew on as we go further. I, I don't know. I, I feel like we were talking about this last night. I, I feel like sports will be better as soon as we as soon as we stop taking these unwritten rules so seriously. And I honestly think I I think a way to do that let's let's play uh, Natasha Bedingfield when the right after something happens here. Lighten up the mood. Lighten the mood. The rest is still unwritten. And uh, may, let these players realize just how idiotic it is that they're <laughs> that they're enforcing this. Every stadium should have Natasha Bedingfield ready to go in these times, especially the baseball ones too. We, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm pro uh, taking shots until the final buzzer. I'm pro bat flip. I'm I'm pro all of it. Bro, throw throw what your your hat your headband into the into the crowd flip your bat, dunk the ball at the end of the game, no matter what the score is. I'm I'm pro all of it. Absolutely. Uh, Got to let you go here, but before we do, I want to just, what do you expect tonight in Denver? Uh, again, eighth back-to-back of the season, another third game in, in uh, four nights. Uh, what do you expect from the Jazz tonight in Denver? You know, I think that it depends on kind of what we're going to see um, as far as who, who's available. We know that they're not going to have Colin Sexton. Um, I have a, a, a very strong suspicion that they're not going to have Mike Conley. And uh, we don't know if Lowry Markinen is going to be back. Uh, he's been sick for a few days. And so uh, if they're without all of those guys, I think that it's going to be kind of difficult. But again, as we've been talking about today, 
these are kind of the things that the Jazz have to go through, and it's good for them. Even if they lose these games and even if they're dealing with kind of a short roster, the players that are out there, it's really good for them. And so uh, I'll be excited to see kind of what we get out of uh, Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Taylor Horton-Tucker. I think that every game that they kind of get more reps, it's, it's a good chance for us to look at them and evaluate them and see what their progress looks like. I mean, you were there last night when I asked Mike Conley if he was going to be playing tonight. Uh, I kind of caught him off guard as he was walking away after the press conference, and he sort of stopped and uh, didn't, didn't really know what to say. Uh, and he smiled and he said, I don't know, we'll figure it out. And uh, that, that feels like saying a lot without saying much. And, and so I think that it, it, it's going to be a tough one tonight for the Jazz. Yeah, that was a veteran savvy reporter move by you. A great moment in the press room uh, to catch him off guard like that. Yeah, I think it, it's safe to say that does not make you feel like he's going to play. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah. Really appreciate the time. Uh, have a safe trip in Denver, and have a good rest of your weekend. Great. Looking forward to seeing you next time, Jane. All right, that's NBA. That's uh, Sarah Todd at NBA Sarah on Twitter. Really appreciate the insight there. Fun week for the Jazz. Unfortunately, didn't go two and zero at home. Uh, back tonight in Denver, seven or I believe seven o'clock tip on AT and T Sportsnet. I could be wrong on that. Google it. Uh, up next, I'll get, I didn't get to this last week. Ran out of time. I may actually run out of time today. But if we have time on the other side, I do want to uh, reveal my first true All Star rankings of the season. Who's the the most deserving players to play here at in the All Star game mid come mid February? You're listening to Sports Saturday with me, James Peterson, on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back to Sports Saturday. I like that you're broken. Broken like me. Listen to my show. Appreciate your ears. On this Saturday, Valley Collision Studio is where I am of ESPN 700. Really appreciate Valley Collision for their support. By the way, it is a 7 o'clock start. I Googled it for you. It's a 7 o'clock start tonight. Jazz Nuggets in Denver. I apologize. I apologize. Sometimes there's little details when you're prepping for a show that just go by the wayside. And that was one of them for this show. So 7 o'clock start time, Jazz Nuggets in Denver. Third game in four nights. Eighth back-to-back of the season. Doesn't sound like Mike Conley's going to play. Maybe without Lowry Markinen. Could be a rough night in Denver. But I will say this. The Jazz have made a season out of completely taking us by surprise. So they could have all those guys gone and still beat Denver on the road, even though it feels really unlikely that that would happen. And Denver's a good team. And they obviously have the back-to-back reigning MVP in uh, Nikola Jokic. They've got a healthy Jamal Murray. He's still he's still not quite to the form that uh, his best form anyway. He's still kind of rounding into shape after missing more than a year of uh, more than a season of basketball. Um, but he's healthy and he's playing. Uh, he had a really good night in Portland, I thought, the other night. What was that? Uh, Thursday night? Or no, Wednesday night. And uh, 
had some clutch buckets, looked like the old Jamal Murray uh, more so than than at any other point to start this season. So he could be that could be the start of some uh, good things for Jamal and, and him getting back to the kind of player we saw against the Jazz in the bubble, um, which would be great for Denver, not good for the Jazz. Um, so you can't underestimate the Nuggets um, for sure, and uh, it will be a tall order for the Jazz, even if they have everyone going. Um, but if they're without marketing, they're without Conley, which, again, seems pretty likely that Conley's going to be sitting out tonight, They uh, it'll be a tall order. For the Jazz against it. It's a good enough Denver team that they that's going to be tough for them. So we'll see how that goes. 7 o'clock start. AT&T Sportsnet from the Mile High City. Uh, wanted to do this last week. Uh, I, I did release them on Twitter, but I uh, wanted to talk about it over the air. I do Every year I do, or I try to do, there's been some years when I've, I haven't uh, made the time for it, but, but bringing it back this year at least, my true all-star rankings. Now, you're asking yourself, what What do you mean true all-star? Well, every year there's at least two or three. Sometimes there's up to like five or six guys who make it off of reputation, in my opinion. Um, not really deserving all-stars, but they're so-and-so, and they've been all-stars before. So, hey, here you go. Here's another all-star game for you. I... A number of years ago, I started to take notice of that, and I started to go, okay, there's got to be a way to find out who is the most deserving because this whole this guy's a snub, that guy's a snub, everyone's a snub thing isn't really totally true either. (laughs) And so um, I started to look at some of the – I started to look at some of the stats. I went to basketballreference.com to start out, look at some stats that measure uh, value, that give a clear picture of who the most deserving all-stars are, the best, the truly best players in each conference are at any given point in the season. And I started to um, put together what I thought is the true all-star teams for each conference. So, And I, I've tried to do... Um, and I thought that it'd be cool to have a, like a bracketology type thing with it, where with bracketology in college basketball, you see who's on, who's the first four out, who's the last four in, who, who's the number one, who's should be a number one seed, who should be a number three seed and so forth. Um, I thought that'd be cool to see progressively through the NBA season with, Guys, who should be all stars? Who's just outside the the uh, who's just on the other side of being an all star? So I I kind of use that model to do true all star rankings every month leading up to when they announce the official. They finish announcing the official all star teams for each conference, um, but when they finish when they reveal the reserves after they reveal the starters. And so this is my first true all-star rankings of the season. We're a little over a month in. I'll do them again uh, beginning of January and then at least one more time before they announce the uh, all-star reserves. Uh, So here they are. For the West, number one, Luka Doncic. Number two, Anthony Davis. 
Number three, Nikola Jokic. Number four, Stephen Curry. Number five, Shea Gilgis Alexander. Number six, Devin Booker. Number seven, Ja Morant. Number eight, De'Aaron Fox. Number nine, DeMontis Sabonis. Number 10, LeBron James. Number 11, Damian Lillard. And number 12, Desmond Bain. Uh, LeBron's a lot lower than I thought he'd be. His stats are pretty good. Um, but there's some there's some part of them that are just not as high as we've expected from him. His, PR, his PER, for example, is really low. It's close to a career low for him. Um, some of his... His win shares per season, projected win win shares per season, are really low, and that that's to be expected. They're not the Lakers aren't playing very well, um, but those are the, those are for the West. Uh, the first five out in the West: number one, Zion Williamson, just outside of the top twelve right now. Number twelve, Carl Anthony Towns, and he's gonna be out for a long time. He may fall out of the qualification for me just by not by virtue of not playing enough games but for now he's uh number two in the first five out paul george number three number four aaron gordon and number five jeremy grant in the east uh, the true all-stars number one Giannis antetokounmpo number two jason tatum number three kevin durant number four donovan mitchell career year he's having in cleveland number five tyrese halliburton that one really surprised me he's been playing really well but he is made quite a leap this year. Number six, Joel Embiid. Number seven, Jimmy Butler. Number eight, Pascal Siakam. Number nine, Trey Young. Number 10, DeMar DeRozan. Number 11, Jalen Brunson. And number 12, DeJounte Murray. So that's the top 12 for the East right now. In my opinion, if the All-Star game were to take place today, those are the 12 that from each conference that should be in there. The first five out for the East, Bradley Beal, number one. Number two, Miles Turner. Number three, Kristaps Porzingis. That was a surprising one for me. Uh, he's having a quietly good year there in Washington. Number four, Jalen Brown. And number five, Fred Van Vliet. So there you go. True all-star rankings. Uh, Lowry Markinen. you didn't hear his name. He's ranked 18th in the West right now. Um, no other jazz candidates. Rudy Gobert, former jazz man, also unranked. Uh, at this point and these these are as of last Saturday I'll, I'll update them again in about a month beginning of the new year and uh, we'll see if Lowry Markkinen if he can get back on the court we'll see if he's played himself at least into the first five out but as of right now he's he's coming in unranked on my all-star rankings despite how great a season he's having um, yeah uh, Always interesting for me for me to look at these when when I uh, once I put them together. A uh, couple of there's always a couple of surpri- couple of surprises, and odds are those surprises aren't aren't going to actually make the team because they don't have the reputation uh, necessary to actually make the the actual All Star team. But uh, nevertheless, they are uh, at least by my metrics uh, some of the most deserving, or or you know just outside some of the most deserving. Uh, players to uh be honored come mid-february all-star game here in salt lake city this year that should be a lot of fun gonna have events at the huntsman center as well um as well as at the viv of course so uh there you go my true all-star rankings as of last saturday get you an update about a month from now come um january uh, up next, hour two begins. We'll have plenty of college football talk on the way 
At 11.30, Sammy Mora from Ute Zone will join the show to talk Utah football and the Rose Bowl. Before that, though, I'll preview the big game myself. Also, postseason awards were announced this week. A few Utes were recognized in the Pac-12 awards and some national ones. All that and the Heisman Trophy presentation is tonight. Is it going to be Caleb Williams? We'll see. That's next. We'll begin Hour 2. Stick with me. I'm James Peterson. You're listening to Sports Saturday on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back to Sports Saturday right here on ESPN 700. James Peterson with you. Had a great show so far. One hour done. Talked with uh, Sarah Todd of the Deseret News about the Utah Jazz this week. Previewed tonight's game against Denver, 7 o'clock tip in the Mile High City. You can watch it on AT&T Sportsnet, of course. Talked about Rudy's return last night at the Viv. A wild win on Wednesday night and, and more. Talked about unwritten rules and more. Good conversation with Sarah, as always. Uh, talked a little bit about Brittany Griner. Uh, awesome that she's home. Um, just should never have been detained in the first place. And just unfortunate that she had spent almost 10 months in that situation in Russia. What a traumatic experience that undoubtedly was. And uh, wishing her and her family all the best going forward. Um, awesome news, though, that, that she is home. Um, and uh, you miss anything? Go to ESPN700sports.com or uh, search ESPN700 Sports Saturday wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you, listen to ESPN700 on December 19th and 20th for the Road Home Holiday Media-a-thon to raise funds to provide shelter, support, and housing for the Road Home. Drop off needed hats, gloves, blankets, and coats at any Rocky Mountain Chevrolet dealership or visit ESPN700sports.com to donate help others find their way home. And if you are uh, if you need help finding those Rocky Mountain Chevy dealers where you can drop off the clothing items or, or uh, monetary donations, uh, you can also find that on our website, ESPN700sports.com. we got a page there that shows all of the uh, Rocky Mountain Chevy dealer locations where you can Drop off your donations. Again, help others find their way home and listen to us on December 19th and 20th at the Road Home Mediathon. Uh, let's talk about the Rose Bowl, though, shall we? Uh, Utah finishing at eighth in the country in the not technically the final college football playoff rankings. That comes after the college football playoff is over, um, beginning of January. Uh, but the final ones before, of the regular season, of the before the bowl season begins, um, so they're eighth in the country. They'll face number 11 Penn State in the Rose Bowl, the granddaddy of them all, on a non-traditional date, January 2nd. Um, the first is on a Sunday. My thought is that they either can't hold it there because of the because of NFL action or they don't want to compete with the NFL. So they're putting it on, on uh, Monday, January 2nd. Um, Penn State, they're the third highest Big Ten t- the third highest ranked Big Ten team behind number two Michigan and number four Ohio State, who of course are both going to be in the playoff. And so that makes way for Penn State to uh, be able to play in the Rose Bowl this year against Utah. The Pac-12 champions, back-to-back Pac-12 champions should be a lot of fun. This will be the last traditional Pac-12 versus Big Ten Rose Bowl. 
um, because the Rose because with the expanded playoff, the Rose Bowl is going to be a part of that rotation going forward. So it's going to be we will still undoubtedly see Pac-12 and Big Ten matchup in the Rose Bowl in the playoffs going forward, um, but it's not going to be guaranteed. It, it'll be random. These guys both made it, and they're in the seeds. They're in the right seeds to be able to play each other um, in the Rose Bowl. That's kind of how. That's what it will be going forward because next year it will. The Rose Bowl is part of the playoff rotation for the last four-team playoff, um, and then in 2024 is going to be the first year of the 12-team playoff, and they're going to be and the Rose Bowl is going to be part of that rotation. So it's an end of an era for the granddaddy. Uh, and I know there's a lot of nostalgia tied up into that, myself included. Um, you always look forward to the best of the Pac-12 taking on the best of the Big Ten, and uh, we won't necessarily get that. At least it won't be guaranteed to get that uh, going forward. So this will this is a monumental uh, Rose Bowl in that regard. And two uh, nearly top 10 ranked teams, one in Utah and, and number 11, Penn State. They're kind of mirror images of each other. That's what makes this uh, matchup so interesting. They both like to control the line of scrimmage, running the ball. Penn State has two running backs who nearly over 1,000 yards each, both, I believe, over 800 yards rushed on the season. Um, Utah, of course, that's always part of their identity. Um, even if they had to do kind of a patchwork running back commit running back by committee approach this year uh, with with all the stuff that went on with Tavion Thomas being in and out in and out of the lineup and him officially declaring that he is opting out of the rest of the season a couple weeks ago, uh, so he won't be available for the Rose Bowl. Uh, Jaquin and Jackson though has been a revelation this year as they've moved him from third-string quarterback to the running back position. But particularly these last two games, he's been a beast in the Utah's backfield, in Utah's backfield. So um, I expect him to be a big factor in this game. Penn State's running backs should be a big factor in this game as well. And also something that I don't think gets highlighted quite enough about this matchup is it's two uh, veteran quarterbacks, really savvy veteran quarterbacks. Uh, no one's saying that, Sean Clifford's better than Cam Rising. Cam is, is, to me, clearly the better quarterback. But Sean Clifford is a guy who's been around for a long time, and he's won a lot of games for Penn State. Um, so he he's a guy that can uh, – he's another guy that I think they're similar in that regard where they've, they're have they veteran quarterbacks that just uh, can make plays exactly when they need to be made. Um, and so that will be a fun – uh, matchup to watch as well the the quarterback matchup cam rising versus uh sean clifford um two veteran coaches of course kyle whittingham we know all about him here and james franklin another guy who's been around for a long time and he's been successful just about everywhere he's been um people will say he's been dis some will say he's been disappointing at penn state um i'll say that that's not really very fair he plays in the toughest division in college football i mean you could say, well, he's only been to one Big Ten championship game. He had, he would have had to beat. He's had Michigan and Ohio State in front of him. Ohio State's dominated that division. Ohio State, in particular, has dominated that uh, that division up until the last couple of years, when uh, that team up north uh, took him down. The past two years, 
but it's it's been Ohio State's division to lose up until Michigan's come in and, and taken over these last two years. And Penn State always finishes, you know, in the seems to always finish in the top fifteen, uh, but third in the division. I mean, no other division in college football would would you really which would they be in that position? Maybe the at times the uh, the SEC West with Alabama, LSU, Ole Miss, and and Arkansas, and all those all those that gauntlet of a, that division can be a gauntlet at times um, where you could have a top fifteen team finish third, and we've seen it there. But other than that, you you're in the top fifteen, you're winning that division usually, and unfortunately. That has not been the case for James Franklin, and I don't think that it's because their teams haven't been good. It's just that they haven't been better than Ohio State and Michigan, and that's hard to do, especially lately. Uh, so this is not a team to underestimate. Just because they're third in their division does not mean that they're not a good team. I and mean, They're number 11 in the country, uh, so this, shouldn't, this should be a good challenge for Utah. Uh, Pac-12 awards released on Tuesday. Lander Barton is the freshman defensive player of the year, Utah freshman linebacker. He had three and a half sacks, second most in the conference among freshmen, five tackles for loss. That's the third in the conference among freshmen. He had six tackles, a fumble recovery, and one pass breakup in the Pac-12 championship game uh, last Friday. And uh, he was the college football network. He was a college football network freshman All-American. Great year for Lander Barton. Congratulations to him. Um, he, by the end of the year, you you could see why he was so highly touted uh, coming into this season, and you can you can foresee uh, the great things that were expected of him that are expected to, of him uh, going forward in this Utah defense. Lander Barton, freshman defensive player of the year in the Pac-12, four uh, first-team All-Pac-12 players for Utah: tight end Dalton Kincaid. Offensive lineman Braden Daniels and uh, Satoa Laumea and cornerback Clark Phillips. No brainers there. All of them had fantastic seasons. And uh, two second teamers, defensive lineman Junior Tafuna and linebacker Kareni Reed. Another, another two guys who had really good years for Utah. So six guys making the uh, all Pac 12 teams. Four first-teamers, two second-teamers. Congratulations to them. Honorable mentions, quarterback Cam Rising, alignman Keaton Bills, safety Cole Bishop, D-lineman Jonah Ellis, defensive back R.J. Hubert, and wide receiver Devon Vele. So I know that some saw Cam Rising uh, not being on the first and second teams of All-Pac-12, saw that and went, oh, what a snub. Listen, as great a year as Cam had, he was not as good as Caleb Williams and Michael Penix Jr., uh, the Washington quarterback, Michael Penix, USC, Caleb Williams. You, I mean, Caleb Williams is going to win the Heisman tonight, probably. Um, and Michael Penix set a school record for passing yards this year, led the Pac-12 in passing yards. I mean, and, and they were the only other 10-win uh, regular season team. It was them and USC. So – as great as Cam Rising was, and he was really good. Uh, Michael Penix was just that much better. So I have no problem with the all Pac-12 quarterbacks. Uh, you can still have a great season and miss out. Only two can make it. And this year, 
there were so many good quarterbacks uh, in this conference, and uh, it's no shame to be left out. It's like what I just was, got done talking about with Penn State finishing third in the Big Ten in the Big Ten East. You're still a really, you can still be a really good team. I mean, number eleven in the country, and finish third in your division just because, and that's just that's how tough that division is. That's how tough it is. Cam Rising being an honorable mention instead of being one of the two all Pac-12 quarterbacks just speaks to how tough it was to uh, beat out the other quarterbacks this year. How good of a of a quarterback class we had in this conference all year long. No shame in in not making it. it a really good quarterback was not was not going to make the uh, all Pac-12 teams, and it's because there's only two of them that could be put in. There's maybe five that were deserving of it. So uh, there you go. Offensive Player of the Year for the Pac-12, of course, USC quarterback Caleb Williams. He Heisman finalist as well. By all accounts, the favorite to get the award tonight. He's first team All Pac-12. The co they were co coaches of the year. There was that debate. Is it Kalen? Is it Kalen DeBoer? Is it Jonathan Smith? Is it Lincoln Riley? Well, uh, it's Washington's Kalen DeBoer and Oregon State's Jonathan Smith. Lincoln Riley uh, did not get enough votes. So your coaches of the year, Kalen DeBoer and Jonathan Smith, can't argue with those. But Jonathan Smith in particular, uh, doing some great things with the Beavers. Um, up in Corvallis, freshman offensive player of the year, Oregon State's Damian Martinez, and uh, Pat Tillman, defensive player of the year, USC's defensive lineman Tui uh, Tui Pelotu. Um, a little bit surprised that it went to a USC defensive player, as good as he was. A little bit surprised because that defense had a lot of holes all year long, but uh, that's how good he he stood out despite all of that. The Heisman Trophy going to be given out, given out tonight, 6 o'clock on ESPN. Four quarterbacks are finalists. Uh, Caleb Williams, we talked about him. TCU's Max Duggan, Ohio State's C.J. Stroud, Go Bucks, and Georgia's Stetson Bennett. That's the one that surprised me a bit. Um, I admittedly did not get to watch as much Georgia football as I would have wanted to. So I, I may have just missed something about how great a season he is, but it seems like a, hey, it seems like a, uh, hey, you guys had back-to-back undefeated regular seasons. You haven't gotten much recognition for that. You had a really good year. You will give a bunch of voters were like, let's, let's include you in our top three um and there's usually there's three there's four this year you must have tied with uh with a quarterback to get enough uh votes to be considered a finalist that one was a little surprising to me though the other three not at all we heard all year about cj stroud being a favorite we heard towards the end of the year caleb williams emerging and as well as uh the horn frogs max duggan um but there you go it's going to come down to those four again it feels like it's Caleb, if it's anyone but Caleb Williams, it'll be a big surprise at this point. Uh, the trophy presentation tonight at six on ESPN. Um, and I don't really have, I don't have an issue with any of these. Stetson Williams was just, or Stetson Bennett was just a bit of a surprise to me that he was included. Don't really have any issue with anyone else being in there. Uh, four quarterbacks. Uh, that tends to be the case. 
a quarterback winning the Heisman. It's going to happen again this year. Uh, winding down this segment, we do have to head to a break here. But coming up on the other side, we're going to bring in Ute Zone Sammy Mora to preview the Rose Bowl. We'll talk with her also about uh, transfer portal stuff. The transfer the transfer portal is open. Talk to her about guys from Utah that have left the portal, guys who are coming in from other teams. Um, see if she's got any more intel about anyone opting out of the Rose Bowl, uh, anyone making a decision about coming back next year. We'll, we'll talk to her about that. Uh, but mostly Rose Bowl preview. January 2nd in Pasadena, Utah versus Penn State. We'll get her thoughts on the the huge Pac-12 championship win over USC last week in Vegas. Plus, she's she's a Red Rocks reporter. We'll talk to her about the Red Rocks preview last night. On the other side, this is Sports Saturday with James Peterson on Utah's number one sports talk in Home of the Utes, ESPN 700. Sports Saturday, ESPN 700, James Peterson with you. We are about a half hour left in the show, a little under a half hour left in the show, uh, talking Utah football. We'll talk some Red Rocks gymnastics as well. They had the Red Rocks preview last night with our next guest, uh, Utah insider from Ute Zone, Sammy Mora. Sammy, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing awesome. Uh, good to have you. We're going to have to have you come in and, and co-host with me again um oh yeah that would be that would be that'd be great i, I miss being in that studio so <laughs> that'd be that'd be down for sure yeah we'll, we'll have we'll have you in one of these times but we'll we'll do it over the phone for now um were you at let's start out with this were you in vegas for the pac-12 championship i was um i wasn't able to go last year but this year i you made it sure to awesome. make the, the journey down yep and i was up in that press box uh watching that game yeah, so what was that like at Allegiant Stadium? I unfortunately was not able to go. I'm here running things from the studio. So what was that like at Allegiant Stadium seeing that huge win back-to-back Pac-12 championships for Utah? Um, it was honestly, it was a it was a really fun experience. Um, I think a lot of Utah fans were kind of hesitant, you know, that first little half, first half of the game where it was that 3-17, to and it was kind of like prepping for the worst, but... Uh, Utah, you know, found a way to get it done. They Morgan Scally drew up a, 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 a very, very, very good game plan for that defense. Um, found the the holes in that USC offense and was just able to exploit it. Yes, I know Caleb Williams was hurt during the majority of the game, but still, it was a it was a total defensive performance and a total defensive beatdown for Utah. And then just on the offensive side of the ball, Andy Ludwig, like. He did what he did. He called the, he called a really great game for the offense as well. You know, he got the players that needed to get involved involved. We kind of expected Dalton to be Dalton Kincaid to be double and triple teamed, especially given how USC handled him last uh, in October. But you know, you got Thomas Yasmin going, you got Money Parks going, you got a lot of those younger guys, uh, the the key touches, and then you had Jaquinn and Jackson just put on a show um he's i have a feeling he's going to be a very great running back for utah by the time his career is over but overall it was just a great performance great to see this team get another pac championship especially back-to-back given the the up and down nature of this season you know florida oregon ucla those three losses you know there was times where it was it felt like all hope was lost but 
as Cameron Rising has said this season, there there's an unwavering belief with this team, and and I think we saw that on full display last weekend in Vegas. Yeah, Sammy, why do you think they only really showed their full the full potential of this team against USC this year? I mean, at least I mean, obviously they had the blowout wins against some of the lesser opponents in the Pac-12, but it took them a while to get going in those mm-hmm. games still. Um, and they were they saw early deficits in a lot of those, uh, obviously ones that no one doubted they could overcome. But it bled into some of the other some of the better teams they played. You talk about the Oregon game, you talked about uh, UCLA, and then Florida playing at the Swamp the first game of the year, even though Florida didn't didn't turn out to be a great team. That's a that's one that's a, a tough one to overcome if you have a slow start. Why do you think? It don't, we only really saw that, even though we did see slow starts against USC, we really only saw the full potential of this team, particularly this offense, against USC. Why couldn't we see it in the other ones, you think? Um, it's That's a question that's it's, it's, it's a hard one to answer because Utah's been known to like always play every single game with as if it's a championship and stuff like that. But I think... I think there's just a lot going on, especially if you look at the scope of the Pac-12 with the announcement that USC and UCLA are leaving and going to the Big Ten. I think I mentioned this prior to the season starting. I felt that the the target on the back was going to be off of Utah because, you know, as Pac-12 champion, everyone has their target. The target should have been on Utah's back for everyone to take Utah down. But I think the target was put mainly on USC and UCLA for so like abandoning the conference and abandoning the other teams to go to the big 10 and Utah has always played extremely well against USC. That's not something you can like take, like, like ignore. They've always tried to put out their best games against the Trojans. And as much as some people don't want to admit it, I honestly feel like Utah and USC is developing into a rivalry of some sorts because it's a game that fans really look forward to every single year. And um, Utah shows out for all of those big games, and they show up for every game. Um, sometimes you, they don't show up the way you want them to show up, but it's just it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, combination between Utah and USC because especially this year with USC bringing in all those high profile transfers and the new head coach Lincoln Riley, you know, people were thinking that USC was going to be unbeatable and um, no one was going to be able to take them down. But Kyle Whittingham gets his guys prepped for every single game and preps them well. And so I think it was mainly just Utah showing up to do what they know they can do. And they can they feel like they can go toe-to-toe with any team in the country. And even though USC had those very high expectations, even heading into the Pac-12 championship game, Utah was able to just keep their head down, do what they do, and just take advantage of what they knew was the weakness. Because Utah, when they beat US, USC the first time this season, they gave every other team in the country a blueprint on how to beat them. And like some teams tried to take advantage of that, namely UCLA, but Utah was able to exploit that same blueprint twice and come out on top in both of those games. I uh, want to talk about the moment of loudness. Uh, it's obviously really cool at Rice Eccles Stadium. Love that they decided to continue that tradition this year and beyond. But I got to say, it seemed to me, it's it's like it's even cooler at the Pac-12 championship game the past two years because that's the conference recognizing it, not just the school. The conference saying, yeah, we want this to be a part of it when Utah's playing. And that's not all Utah fans. Like you, like you get at Rice Eccles Stadium, I know that – Plenty of USC fans and Oregon fans last year may not have known what was going on and maybe didn't really take part in it. But there's 
the fact that there's a lot of fans for the other for the opponent's team or for the opponent stands to reason there that there's plenty of the opponent's fans also recognizing that. Like, how was that in person this year at the Pac-12 championship game? Um, it was probably one of my favorite moment of loudnesses that I've ever I've ever been a part of and seen. I just think because at Allegiant Day they. they dropped all of the lights out in the stadium. They just played the video that fans are used to seeing at, at Rice Eccles. And I think the, the complete darkness in the stadium really, like, made the mood a little bit better, I want to say, because, you know, when they do the moment of loudness during day games, it's kind of – it still is a very important moment, but it doesn't feel as, like, passionate at times because of, like, you're in broad daylight. You can't really see everyone's flashlights, everything like that. But then, like – Night games at Res with the moment of loudness are always so magical and so amazing. But I think that that one at the Pac-12 championship was just different. Um, it was obviously the turning point in that game for Utah, I think, because after that moment of loudness, Utah just went on a tear. And they just, like, took everything they had and just laid it on USC. And I think, like, there was a good number of USC fans who participated in it. Um, I know last time we talked about, like, when USC was here the first time, uh, former Utah running back coach Kyle McDonald participated in the moment of loudness when it happened at Rice-Eccles because he was Ty Jordan's lead recruiter. Like, he was part of the reason he ended up at Utah. So people still get involved in it no matter what. And I think um, it's, it just, it's really great to see the Pac-12, like, letting Utah bring that with them because I know how much it, how much it means to these fans and how much it means to the team. So to have that at a neutral site game in a big game, I think is, is, is great. And the major props to the Pac-12 for like allowing Utah to bring it with them. Yeah. I, I think it's an awesome tradition. Obviously it'd be really great. Um, it'd be really great going forward at Rice Eccles stadium. And it, it's awesome. That it looks like the Pac-12 is going to continue that as long as Utah's in that game uh, going forward as well. Uh, let's move over to the Rose Bowl, Sammy. Uh, they're facing number 11 Penn state. Ohio State and Michigan get all the media attention when you talk about the Big Ten because they've dominated that conference, particularly Ohio State over the years. But that's a really good program James Franklin has built, and it should be a good challenge for the Utes. Yeah, I'm excited to see these two teams. Uh, it's going to be, the I, if I remember correctly, it's the first time that these two programs have ever met. Um, yeah, that's right. If you look if you look at the history between the two programs, like, separate, like, it's it's a very – it's a fun game. It's going to be a fun game. Looking at it on paper, you think that Utah has what it takes to handle uh, Penn State, both on offense and defense. So, you know, it's still – I'm just – I'm getting into my, like, film breakdowns and everything right now. So, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how this, this shakes out, you know. Um, I, I think Utah should be able to win this one. Um, I feel like they have more of the momentum swinging in their favor. And I don't – I don't like to talk about peaking in football because it's kind of it's hard, you know, it's it's a weird thing. But I think if you had to say Utah's peaking, like when they're peaking, I think they're peaking right now, and that's like the best possible thing because if you peak at the right time, you're usually going to catch your opponent on their heels. And so, and it's going to be interesting because last year when they played Ohio State, the Rose Bowl was a letdown game for them, whereas Penn State is happy to be back there, and Utah's equally excited to be there because they're Pac-12 champions for the second year in a row. So I think the matchup is going to be a very, very, very good one between these two teams. And I'm excited to just see like the history of this Penn state program, you know, um, 
It's going to be also interesting to see the actual Rose Bowl Stadium with two different colors this year. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously last year both teams were red, so it was kind of hard to deviate who was Ohio State fans and who was Utah fans. But this year we'll have a clear divide of saying how many Utah versus how many Penn State fans are going to be there. But um, I'm excited. I'm excited to go back. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, it should be. I told Josh Newman it should be a nice patriotic look in the stadium with Penn State's navy and white and, and Utah's red and white um exactly there should be it would be seems like it would be pretty picturesque in the stadium not just the sunset uh this year for sure um it's been a banner week for recruiting that's what you guys do best over at Ute Zone I know I, I don't know how much you particularly go into I know it's it's more Steve Bartle's bag but wanted to ask you since the transfer portal is open Utah's already getting some commitments from it. Tell us about the commitments uh, Kyle Whittingham and company secured this week. Um, so we get two transfers. You get Levani Dumani from Stanford. Um, obviously, he was the biggest bright spot on that entire Stanford defense this year. I think fans saw it on um, when Stanford was here at the end of this season. But he is just he is a hard hitting linebacker. Great size, great speed, um, very physical, and I. I I kind of expect him to kind of have the same role that Modi Abade had this this season for Utah, just kind of that that linebacker that's able to get in there, do his thing, and then just cause havoc. And then you also get uh, Logan Fano, the defensive end transfer from BYU, uh, brother of Spencer Fano, who I'll, I'll talk about briefly in a minute. But again, another another big defensive end that I think Utah is going to be able to sit and develop and get get to the point where he is a contributor because you're seeing a lot of the young guys right now for Utah contribute on the defensive end room with Van Fillinger and, and Jonah Ellis being dinged up a little bit was especially Fillinger out for the season. You know, biggest one was Connor O'Toole who had a, a great game against um, USC in the championship game. And then you have Miki Sugutaranga who also was playing very well in that Pac-12 championship game. So you get those two transfers um, so far. And then for the high school, you get, Obviously, you get Spencer Fano, the offensive tackle, four-star from Timothy High School. Um, Utah beat out Michigan, Clemson, um, and Oregon for him. And I think uh, that's a huge get for Jim Harding. Um, it's it's I, It's been swept on, not swept under the rug, but it's been like an ignored fact this year that Utah was three for three on their offensive line prospects, and they got all three of them. They got Fano, they got Caleb Lomu from Arizona, and then they got Roger Alderman from California. So that's a huge credit to Jim Harding for knowing his guys that he wants and being able to go in there and get them and bring them into Utah. Um, and then the last commitment we've had recently is uh, Hunter Clegg, the defensive end from oh, American yeah, that's a big High one. School. Yeah, huge get. You know, he was originally committed to Stanford and then just flipped last week. Huge get. I love his play. You know, his numbers weren't as great this past high school season than they were his junior year, but he was being double and triple, sometimes even triple teamed by other high schools just because of how disruptive he is. Um, I think he, he has a he has a very high ceiling. He um, he's going to be a great contributor for Utah. It's going to take him. A, I think it's going to take him a little bit of time to get like acclimated and used to the whole program and everything. But I think he's going to be another really good prospect for Utah. Um, then it's, we're hoping for big news on Monday. You know, Smith Stoden, the number one corner in the state of Utah. Uh, he will be committing on Tuesday or on Monday at two. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see who he goes. You know, obviously with his dad being Will Snowden from BYU, you always have that factor. But then Utah has the blueprint right now with Clark Phillips. Uh, Clark is was like considered an undersized corner coming out of high school. Uh, so 
and Smith's the same measurable. So you kind of have that, like, hey, look what we did with Clark. Like, you can be the next Clark kind of thing, um, especially with all the awards and accolades he's been raking in this season. So Utah's been on a tear. I, I think it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun coming down to signing day on the 21st. Um, there's just a lot of moving pieces. Utah's on a tear right now recruiting. We're finally seeing the, the dividends of the Rose Bowl bump is what it's called. And I think back-to-back Pac-12 championships doesn't, like, hurt the matter. Either. Oh, it actually not. makes it easier. makes it easier because you're like, look, two times. And now the playoffs is expanding. We would have had a first-round bye. Like, it's a great sales pitch to have at Utah. And I think the coaches are, like, they're really good. They're there are a bunch of closers up there, and I think they're going to get the guys they want, and those guys are going to be Utes. Uh, before I let you go, talking with uh, Sammy Mora of Ute Zone here on Sports Saturday for a couple more minutes here. Before I let you go, Sammy, uh, the uh, Red Rocks season officially underway. They had their preview last night at the Huntsman Center. I'm assuming you were there. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the Red Rocks preview, I, I always explain it as it's like a spring game. You're going to see stuff, and you're also not going to see stuff. So you didn't see a lot of, like, full tumbling from some of the, like, more experienced girls like Miley O'Keefe and Abby Polson. You didn't see a full, like, full set from them on floor. Kara Aker, you also didn't see full sets from. Um, and, like, on vault, Tom always beat – Tom Farden is always a little bit, like, cautious with injuries and stuff. So you always see your girls vaulting onto extra mats for extra protection with spotters behind them and everything. So – not all, there's things you can take from the Red Rock preview, but there's also things you need to like just wait until see it until the season starts on in January. But it's honestly it's going to be a great season for the Red Rocks. I think you know they they don't lose a lot of talent from last year. I think they lose one or two starting routines out of all of their rotations. So plus you have Crystal Issa coming back, electing to come back for her fifth year. Um, you get transfer Abby Brenner from Michigan, who she won a national championship there, and that's what. Utah's been struggling to do for the last, since the 90s, basically, is get that back to that national championship. And I think having Brenner as someone who's actually won that national championship come into this program is going to be, it's going to be important because not only is she going to be contributing on that vault lineup, which is a dire need for Utah, but she's also going to be bringing that experience of like what championship winning teams do. So you have her, then you also have a pair of uh, very good freshmen come in. You have Sarah Crump, who sadly we did not see last night just due to like, the number of gymnasts we were they were running, they did eight per event. And then you have McKenna Smith, who we saw in the all-around last night, which as a true freshman running in the all-around, that's very impressive, especially given the scope of college gymnastics. But she looked very, very, very good last night. Um, she was the only girl who didn't vault onto extra mats, um, but she did stick her landing, which is very, very, very good, very impressive. Um, I think she threw a 10 10 start value vault, which is what Utah needs to do to win a national championship. Um, Utah is going to be a beam team once again. You know, they just they just keep reloading girls on beam. You have Miley O'Keefe, who set the school record with number uh, consent, or number of 10s in the season last year. You have Crystal Issa. You have Abby Poulsen, uh, uh British Olympian Emily Morgan. You have Kara Aker. You have Grace McCallum, two of the United States Olympians on this team. It's just this roster is loaded. And I think Utah has a very, very, very good chance of making a deep run into postseason and maybe possibly even winning a national title this year um, just because this team is so talented. They're so deep, and I, I think they're hungry for it. They were so close last year. Um, they finished in third, and they're just, they're, they're, they can taste it. And I think they know they can get there, and it's just, a, it's just fully like 
finishing the job because they came vault was their Achilles heel last year, even though Jaden Rucker won the national title on vault, they still vault cost them a couple of meets down the stretch. And I think having, having, having Abby Brenner and then also like McKenna Smith and some of the other girls back and healthy is going to be very, very, very crucial for this team. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Sammy. Uh, Appreciate the insight and have a good rest of your weekend. Thanks. Have a, have a good Saturday, you guys. All right. That's Sammy Mora. Good friend of the show. Uh, does a great job over at Ute Zone covering Utah football and uh, Red Rocks gymnastics. Uh, awesome stuff from her there. Really appreciate her time. Uh, got ahead to a break here. We'll we'll wrap up the show next. Look ahead to the rest at the rest of the sports weekend. World Cup action, football, the whole thing uh, coming up here on the station and other places. We'll we'll give you the lowdown on all of it. This is Sports Saturday with me, James Peterson, on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. A couple minutes left here on Sports Saturday. James Peterson with you, Olivia Benyon behind the glass. We're just thinking about the good old days. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Uh, Sports Saturday. Really good show here. If you miss anything, go to ESPN700sports.com. Search ESPN700 Sports Saturday wherever you get your podcasts. You'll get you'll you can hear uh, our interview with with Sarah Todd of the Deseret News talking about the Jazz Week and and previewing tonight's matchup in Denver. And uh, we just got done talking with Sammy Moore of Ute Zone previewing the Rose Bowl and uh, the Red Rocks season. As well, talking, recapping the uh, Pac-12 championship game as well. Uh, again, ESPN700sports.com is where you go, or ESPN700 Sports Saturday, wherever you get your podcast if you missed that. Uh, let's give you the lowdown on a busy sports weekend here. Coming up right after us here on the station, the Army-Navy game. That's pretty exciting to be able to have that game via Westwood 1. Uh, pre-game coverage begins at noon, kick at 1 o'clock. Uh, right here on ESPN 700. Uh, and then later on the station, uh, 4.45 pregame, 5 o'clock tip of number 15 Utah women's basketball at BYU from the Marriott Center. Tyson Ewing on the call. And uh, in the NBA, Jazz Nuggets already talked about that. 7 o'clock tip on AT&T Sportsnet in the Mile High City. And World Cup quarterfinals continue. Morocco took down Portugal 1-0 earlier today. And uh, just about ready to get started. They just finished the anthems um, in Qatar. England and France renewing their rivalry uh, a few minutes from now on Fox. Tomorrow, NFL action here on ESPN 700. Eagles and Giants. How about Britton Covey and his performance in the punt return game last week against the Titans? See if he can build off of that performance in a in a uh, big-time rivalry there in the NFC East against the Giants. Coverage begins at 10 right here on ESPN 700 via ESPN Radio. And Sunday night football, Chargers hosting the Dolphins. Pre-game coverage begins at 5.30 right here on ESPN 700 via Westwood One. That's going to do it for me. I'm James Peterson. That's Olivia Benyon doing a great job behind the glass. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, this has been Sports Saturday on your home of the Utes, RSL, and Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.